book. Well, let me give you a few uh, updates and uh, housekeeping stuff here real quick. Um, make sure everybody's on the same page on some things. One is, um, if you have joined South Spring before, April, uh, before Easter, then if you would like to, you also can sign in on the book over there that, makes, that, that declares you a founding member of, of South Spring. And again, there's going to be it's not like most founding churches that have like six people sign up. It's going to be like 1,200 people maybe, but that's, which is great. Um, but if you've not done that, the book, the book will be closed and filed or whatever is done with it on Easter. And so if you would like to do that, if you want to join the church and be able to do that. And, and just so make sure you know, if you are a member of First Baptist Church South Campus, if you don't fill out the little card that says you're becoming a member of South Spring you will still be a member of First Baptist Church. There won't be a South Campus anymore. You'll just be a member of First Baptist Church. So just, which is great, by the way. It's a great church. But if, if you don't want to do that, make sure you make, sure you make that change. Just want to, if you want to miss that and be surprised by that later. Um, uh, also, um, so we just, we're just in the middle of kind of continuing to gather up the capital campaign stuff. So those of you who work with children's ministry stuff, if you've worked over there, if you were there last hour, you know that many Sundays, space is a chronic issue, just having space. I mean, also having workers, it can be a chronic issue, but man, the space thing right now is, is getting us. And so, as if you've been involved in the last month, you heard us talk about that, and, and there'll be even more details. Now that we have a generalized idea of how much money we're going to have to uh, spend on building a building, we'll have more detailed plans and that kind of stuff available soon. If you're waiting on that to make a commitment, I totally get that. However, I would also say the measure of success for us, I believe, as a church, is the percentage of people who commit. It can be totally appropriate. This is, this is not some oath before God, like you're not making a pledge on the temple or his footstool. Or this, is, this is just a commitment. Hey, you know what? I want the leadership to know I'm committed this to give this. And if that's, if that's you and you want to do that, excellent. Our goal would be, honestly, 100% of our membership. I would love for 100% of our membership to just communicate some type of commitment. If you, even if you give and you just want to say, hey, actually, I already gave something. It doesn't matter how much. That's not what we need to know necessarily. I just want to know. If you say, I have no money. I mean, literally, I got nothing. I, I am already behind every month. I have nothing. If you, I, I, I would literally, I would tell you our, our leadership, the church as a whole for us to be able, if you want to fill out a commitment card that says, I am not in a position to give a penny financially, but I want you to know I'm on board or, or I'm praying or I'm, do that. That would, be, that would be awesome. Again, I think I can speak for the church as a whole. I'm not honestly worried about the money. Um, I, there, there's, God can provide that as God sees fit. I, I, that doesn't worry me. I want us to have as a unified body be able to say, when, when I say we, I'm, that it means we. And so I hope you will do that if you're a member of the church at some point. <laughs> We've got about 350 to 400 families-ish in the church um, so far, between about 150 and 200 people have committed. So we're at about 50%. And I'd love to see that closer to 100%. Um, in fact, I'd love to see it 100%. So um, something like that would be awesome. Um, and then one other thing you need to know about. Lord willing, our last significant um, transition vote will happen next Sunday. Um, not, it won't be a huge ordeal. Part of it will be electing a new leadership board, um, which is Fantastic, and it's, a, it's an important part of the church's life, and we'll do that every year. Um, and we've got a way of doing that. Also, um, in addition to his other two full-time jobs, um, Ryan Gardner, um, uh, one of the members of our church, has been 
spending time adding essentially another full-time job by taking care of our bylaws and getting them ready. So this week, very early in the week, you should get an email today or tomorrow that has the bylaws with the, uh, or the recommended changes by the teams in the church and a list of people who will be on the ballot for leadership board with a short bio with them. Be looking for that in your emails. If you have questions about either one of those, there will be a team here at 4.30 on Wednesday um, to answer any questions. We'll be here right up until dinner starts at 5.30. So at any point, if you would like to show up during that and ask any questions about bylaw stuff or whatever, we'd love to have that. And then the South Spring bylaws will be solidified in place. Um, and I know that that has been really troubling a lot of you. I mean, I just, I know you've been sitting there like, I can't wait to start ministering, teaching classes, working with children until we get those settled. Um, no, I'm totally being sarcastic. You've been doing that and we've been doing that. That's never slowed down. Um, but this is an important part of church family as well. So giving you a heads up on all of those so that you know about them and you'll get them now while you're still fresh and not kind of zoned out after the sermon uh, during the announcements at the end when, you're, when this, the donuts have kind of drained out of your system and the, you're in your sugar low. So <coughs> good. Uh, in, no, I'm assuming no questions or anything I'm missing on. All right, so we're jumping into Matthew 24. I love exegetical, just getting to say, you know what, I'm teaching this, and we're going to teach through it, just go straight through. We're in Matthew 24. We're going to use that as our platform to talk about different aspects of prophecy. So just to teach straight through Matthew 24, starting in verse 1, there's 51 verses in this chapter. It is my hope to actually get into the next chapter somewhat. So we today will be cranking through five whole verses Um, I'm telling you, I have no self-control when it comes to this. Um, I find something that's fascinating and interesting, and I don't know how to not share it with you. And so that's why it took a year, two years, what, four years to get through the book of Mark on Wednesday nights. And so um, it's just just cool stuff, and it's hard not to talk about all of it. And so we'll get as far as we get and count on God to take care of the rest. So in chapter 24 in Matthew, just to lay the groundwork, Jesus has, this is the last week of Jesus' life. And on earth, and he is before the crucifixion, and then it'll be the resurrection after that, but before the crucifixion, which is appropriate, we're working up towards Easter, and we will continue through this conversation up to Easter Sunday. Um, and then on Easter Sunday, my plan is to essentially offer a, a defense of the resurrection. Um, I know that that's kind of, you know, oh, big surprise, you're going to teach on the resurrection on Easter, right? I mean, like, you're, you're really thinking outside of the box there, but we're... Um, and by the way, for those, there'll be people, there will probably be people here on Easter who think all we teach about is the resurrection and the birth of Jesus. That's because they're only here at Christmas and Easter. That's not our fault. Okay, that's, I'm totally teasing about that. I, I mean, no, I'm not. No, no, that's going to be, there will be hundreds, I'm sure. That's, and that's fine. You're always teaching about either Christmas or the resurrection. Um, as we get into this, you need to know, Jesus has just been in a major confrontation with the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. Uh, Matthew 23 is one of the toughest, I mean, this is kind of, this is kind of Jesus at his um, edgiest in Matthew 23. He calls them names. Um, he calls them out before crowds of people. He is in their grill and in their face over and over again. Um, it's, it's a rough passage that Jesus confronts them in the temple area. I mean, he is confronting them on their home turf and going toe-to-toe with them. In Matthew 23, he's just been very critical of them. He quite literally proclaims at the end of chapter 23 that the, law, that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the Jewish leaders at the time, that they will rightly bear the guilt of innocent blood going all the way back to Abel. That's, a, that's fascinating. He says, you, you are personally responsible for this. 
And when he gets to the end of this, his harsh words end with a heartfelt, and I believe even heartbroken, plea. That this is Jesus looking back on him himself as the, the, the second person of the triune God throughout all of history who adores this city that he is leaving for the temple that he's leaving for the last time until he comes back in the resurrection next time, when he comes back to come to earth again. Leaving the city, and, and it's, it's bad. Here's what he says as he leaves the city. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing this is, this is one of the most maternal expressions of God's love. I mean, this is a mother hen looking to gather her chicks under her wings. But the chicks are rebellious, and they will not gather. They won't come. See, your house has left you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As they walk away his last time until he returns, of course, the disciples point out the wonder of the temple. So I want to take a second and comment on the wonder of the temple. Um, if you've been there, you don't need this, but most of us don't ever get a chance to do that. Um, the stones that made up the temple, and so what had happened is Herod the Great, um, depending on your viewpoint, he was either great or Herod the pretty awful guy. Um, so Herod um, had built, he loved building things around Israel, probably to distract the people of Israel from like lynching him. Um, but so he had them working on stuff all the time. And so one of the things he had done is he had taken the temple mount that was there. And he greatly expanded. He built these giant retaining walls all the way around the Temple Mount at the time, Mount Zion, or, or um, it's, it's also the, the Mount Moriah where um, uh, historically Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. <coughs> so that's that. He built these giant retaining walls, 60, 80, 100 feet tall, and then had dirt filled in behind to build a giant flat rectangle hilltop. It's pretty amazing. The stones on this in this are are magnificent. Um, I think we have a picture a picture one. Um, so this is one section of the western wall, um, and that is this right here is the arch that used to expand out from the wall, a giant arch where this right here that's all that's left of it is that arch um, where hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people went up to the temple that way. There were multiple entrances in. Now, when you're looking at this, this is just the retaining wall that's left. You may have missed the person there. So you may not have gotten the scope of just how big something we're talking about here. This, this it is massive. It's, it's really quite shocking. Um, the sum of the stones were 70 feet long, 10 feet wide, 8 feet deep. It's massive. The fact that humans could move it at all when they moved it is, is impressive. The fact that Herod was able to make this happen. These stones dwarf the stones in the Great Pyramids. Um, they're so huge. They are among the largest things that human beings have ever moved. They aren't the largest, but they're among them. They're some of the largest, especially in ancient times. Um, so they can, you can imagine that their mindset... <laughs> the pillars that went all the way around the temple area, um, 27 feet tall, and so far around that it took three men in order to touch hands reaching around them. These massive pillars, surely to the mind of the Jews, this was an indestructible building. It would never be destroyed. 
It was, a, it was a fortress and a temple that would last forever. In fact, when the Romans in 40 years invade, um, for one of the many times they did, and all of the people, the final defenders, go up to the temple mount to fortify themselves for the last time, which is a big part of, of why the consequences of what happens. Jesus says to the people, he's walking with the disciples, probably still a little adrenaline running through his system of his confrontation with the Pharisees. And he walks out of the building, and the disciples comment on it. And Jesus says, you see all these, do you? Truly I say to you, there will be not one left here stone upon the other that will not be thrown down. According to legend, and maybe history, a Roman leader, in order to prove that they had truly destroyed the Jewish culture, had a plow run across the top of the Temple Mount after they had torn it down. That's how few stones were left. You could plow it. Unknowingly, he was fulfilling the prophecy from Micah 3. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins and the mountains of the house a wooded height. As they walked down to the valley of Kidron and up the hillside on the other side towards Bethany, this is the Mount of Olives. At some point, he sat down and turned to to teach them. At this time, at the time that Jesus is doing this, that whole hillside would have been covered with olive trees, some of them hundreds or maybe thousands of years old. Also around A.D. 70, when the Romans are finally fed up with the rebellious Jews, I'm going to mention this in a second. Now when you go visit, it's a giant graveyard because the Romans, there's like one little section of ancient olive trees that the Romans apparently missed because the rest of them, thousands of them probably, The Romans tore them up by the roots. And these are the Romans. So they then salted the soil so that nothing would ever grow there again. These were a vindictive people. It always always is funny to me, by the way, and for years this was actually an argument made. I've not heard that somebody try to make it in a while. But these are the people who every once in a while someone will come along and say, oh, Jesus wasn't really dead, right? That, oh, maybe Jesus wasn't really dead. And I'm like, do you know anything about the Romans at all? The Romans didn't leave things half done. They weren't half measure people. When they wanted you dead, let me just guarantee something for you. You were going to die. They knew dead. They knew dead super well. They slaughtered people from every culture in the entire world. And they had to walk to get there. But they'd walk all the way across the world to find you and kill you. These were were killers as a culture. They knew how to kill. They knew how to destroy. And when they decided you were an enemy, you were going down. And Israel was an enemy, and Israel was utterly destroyed by the Romans. Um, Jerusalem in particular, a few years after Jesus speaks these words. Um, So he's going to answer some questions. They're going to ask him some questions, obviously, when he said that. Um, In fact, look look at the second picture. This is what it looks like now. So that is at the foot of the western wall, further down um, for a little ways. You see those, you see the guy standing by the stones? Those are stones from the temple. From the temple buildings on top of the temple mount, they're down at the bottom of the retaining wall. Why is that? Because the Romans bothered to roll them every single one off of the top of the temple mount. Again, when they don't like you, they're going to make a point. The point they made was to roll those down one after another until they were all gone and they could run a um, plow across the top of it. So Jesus departed the temple. Forty years later, it would be destroyed, utterly destroyed. In fact, let me tell you a little more about that. So in AD 66, a Roman 
procurator, um, wanted to get some taxes. He thought the Jews hadn't paid enough taxes, so he just stormed into the, marched into the temple itself and took silver out of the temple. This is not a way to win friends among the Jewish people. You don't take stuff out of the temple like that. An uproar began, and so he figured out a clever way to stop the uproar. He had 3,600 people executed. That should do it. Not with Jews. They're like Texans. You, you do that kind of thing, and all you do is make them mad. The, the, the tighter you squeeze, the madder they get. The more of them you kill, the more of us come out of the woodworks. And that's exactly what happened. And literally, podunk little Israel declared itself independent of Rome. When that happens, Rome comes and tells you that you're not independent. It triggered a full-blown revolt. The, the, Roman, the man who would be emperor, Titus, shows up with four legions in order to shut down this rebellion. They besieged and destroyed the fortified cities. As we move forward, Jesus' prophecies are going to hit this like in, in detail. According to Josephus, over a million people died. Now, Josephus had a nasty habit of embellishing numbers. But even if you divide that by half, even if you divide it down to one quarter of that, you're still talking two and a half times the entire population of Tyler wiped out, killed in, the, in, a, mo, in a few days, a few years, and by the Roman sword. Um, and I do want to make a, a really quick comment. Just as you're involved in international news and that kind of stuff, when you hear about that kind of stuff, there is a powerful movement um, to deny that either Christianity or Judaism has any claim on the, nation, on the city of Israel, I mean the city of Jerusalem. Uh, even the United Nations, UNESCO, when they, recently they've done this a few times, where they will publish materials about Jerusalem or the holy sites there. They have now gotten into the habit of when they do that, they only use the Muslim names for these sites. Um, it's, and they will reference the, Jew, the Israelis as occupiers of Jerusalem. Um, more and more you're going to see this. You're going to see this movement in which Jewish people and even Christians, um, the, the, in the Muslim world, it is agreed upon with pretty much 100% that there was never a Jewish temple on the Temple Mount. Um, they've, they've pushed that more and more. And we're gonna, you'll start seeing that in America. This idea that there is no historical evidence for a Jewish temple on the Temple Mount. Despite, of course, stacks of stones laying at the foot. The, despite the fact that everything from history at that time discusses this temple. Um, because it's not politically correct to reference it, therefore it's becoming more and more common. In fact, one of my favorite things that um, I would love, and that when people have this argument, I always want to take them instead to Rome. In Rome, <laughs> um, when, a, when a general came back and they had conquered, they would build an arch for them when they had a huge, you know, that kind of thing, and they, especially if it was politically expedient to do so. So when Titus, at some point, Titus comes back and he has an arch built for him in Rome. We have a picture of it. That's, the, that's the, the, one of the friezes, one of the pictures carved into the arch of his great victory. Anyone want to hazard a guess? at what people he has just conquered, and he is bringing back their treasured items. The menorah would be a clue. The giant golden menorah that was in the temple that Titus took. Again, is this, is this like Roman propaganda? Or were the Romans such pro-Zionists that they wanted to somehow propagandize that there was a temple in Israel? No, they were propagandizing the fact that they had just destroyed the temple in Israel. In order to have that, you need a temple in Israel. Of course, there was one there. 
It's, it's ridiculous to say otherwise. And yet, you will hear more and more of it. It was there. Just no matter what your opinion is on the current politics there, and there's, that's more complex than anybody understands, and it goes way, way back and is very basic. And it's, I'm always intrigued to watch people beat, beat their head against that wall. Um, so the disciples connect this doom, which this is their 40 years from this. 40 years later, this is going to happen. At this time, the disciples connect this doom statement of Jesus with Jesus' declaring himself king. His day, the end of days. Now, I think very much so they thought this was going to happen like probably Tuesday, like the next day, or maybe Wednesday, or if it was going to be a while, Thursday. And they didn't realize that by the end of this week, Jesus would be crucified. And you can imagine, if you really think that Jesus is going to declare himself king and, and, and run out the Romans, <clears throat> and instead, he's going to be dead in a week, you can see why their faith flagged a little. Jesus is warning them of what's to come. It is important for us as Christians to recognize this. They were waiting a few days and, and were disappointed. We've now been waiting a couple of thousand years. And it's easy for us to begin to see the teaching of Jesus that he's coming back as cute. Okay, maybe we agree with it. Maybe we believe it. But it's a core teaching of Christianity. In fact, according to the Apostle Paul, if there isn't a resurrection, if there's not going to be this last day, if there's not going to be this resurrection, then, then we're a joke. We should be mocked, pitied. We're pathetic. This is a core teaching I, I sometimes will ask in order to deal with when I'm, when I'm discipling a group through concept of decisions of, of apologetics, the ability to defend our faith, I will ask the question. So if someone irrefutably showed up with evidence that the bones and body of Jesus Christ were found, I don't know what that would be, but let's pretend. Irrefutable. These are the bones of Jesus Christ. He did not resurrect from the grave. What should we do? And according to the Apostle Paul, I think we ought to convert to Judaism. Apparently, we had the wrong Messiah. Now, that's not going to happen. But this is that serious. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection that that means for the rest of us, as we just sang about. This is, this is serious stuff. He is coming back. A lot of the parables Jesus taught were about this. We're going to get to a couple of them. The parable of the talents, the virgins, um, the vineyard owners. These are all about a God who leaves and comes back. So I exhort you, 1 Peter 5, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So the people who you will be voting on next week, the leadership board in this church, this is to them. This is Peter's direct teaching to the decision-making leaders in the church. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. Those are three key teachings in regard to this. If someone talked you into being on the ballot next week, and you don't want to be, you need to tell somebody. You're not under compulsion to do this. It's willingly. If you're doing it so that you can pad your resume or be more important in the community or somehow make some money off of it, 
Take your name off the ballot. That's not what it's for. It's not for shameful gain. And it's not so that you can push your agenda. It's not for domination. It's not domineering so that you can be you know, big man or big woman on campus. That's not what that's about. If that's the motivation, withdraw. It's not for shameful gain. It's not under compulsion. It's not to domineer. It is so that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's the motivation. To make the over-shepherd happy with the under-shepherds. That's all we are. This idea of the end of the age. He is coming back. I'm going to show you um, the signs of the end of the age. We're going to get to a bunch of those here in a second. I didn't, I didn't see him here today. But do you, do, you, do you have the picture of Casey? I figured Casey being a clothing model was evidence of the end of the days. Those who know Casey. I mean, Hillary, yes. But, but really, Casey? Is, are, you're not here, are you? Bummer. See, he's going to miss out on that. He would have appreciated that joke. But um, he was in BC Magazine as the clothing model. I was like, yep, Armageddon. It's coming. So... <laughs> Um, uh, but the end of the age, when we look at this, the consummation of the age, the very last time, the language here implies the very last day. There's come, that day is come. There's going to be a last one. That's kind of a creepy thought for us. Um, in 1 Thessalonians 5, we get this, 1 through 6. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That's common language when you talk about end times. It will come like a thief in the night while people are saying there's peace and security and suddenly destruction will come on them like labor pains on a pregnant woman. They will not escape. Also common language and prophecy. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for the day to surprise you like a thief. You're children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or the darkness, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. Now, one of the churches that I was in during my childhood used passages like this for a fear-based behavioral modification. That was the idea. Don't do anything that you wouldn't want Jesus to come back and catch you doing. That was the idea. It was, you know, don't, don't, go, to, don't go to those type of movies, those PG-13 and R movies. I mean, literally, we were taught, I'm not kidding, guys, that, that you, you could be in a rated R movie and the rapture would come, and obviously no one in a rated R movie was going to get raptured. So you would finish the movie unaware of the fact that your family and friends were gone. But whether it was listening to music with a beat, that, was that, that certainly could, get, could cost you on the last day. Um, playing cards, hours were spent on playing cards. Um, the, the idea that you'd be sitting around with your buddies playing poker and Jesus would show up would be so humiliating, you would have no idea what to do with that. Much less anything else that would be shameful or sinful. That's how this passage was used, to create a sense of, hey, look busy, pretend like you're doing what's good, because he's going to show up and catch you doing what's wrong if you're not careful. That was the idea, which is amazing considering the way this passage continues. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. Notice that once again, the identity is what leads to the activity, not the other way around. We belong to the day, therefore, this is true of us. Because we belong to the day, we should live as though we're in the day, not in the dark. It's not the other way around. The behavioral modification versions of Christianity are the, hey, you, you better pretend like you live in the day and then maybe you will. You better, you better act pure and maybe you'll become pure. Good luck with that. Humans don't, we don't, we don't manufacture purity. Or righteousness. We better hope God gives us those as a gift. Look at this next verse. For God has not destined us for wrath. 
but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10. You, you want to take away the behavioral modification? If you want behavioral modification, Paul makes a huge mistake here. Huge mistake. Who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. Now maybe he's talking about living or dead. But he just referenced be awake for when Jesus comes back. I think he's talking about literally, and if you mess this up, you're still not a child of wrath. If you fall asleep, you know, if you miss it, you know what? You have a bad day, and that's the day Jesus comes back. God, you know that's, you just know that's going to happen, right? It's going to be that type of day. You're going to be tired. You're going you're to just be in the middle of barking at your wife or kids, and he's going to be standing right there, right? You're going to be like, God, I knew it. I, I think a correct understanding of this is Jesus is saying, like, you're not a child of wrath. That doesn't suddenly change. We've been saved. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've been saved for him and by him. And even if you get busted doing something shameful, that doesn't somehow change the right relationship that he has created with us. This is an identity change. Back to Matthew 24, 4 and 5. And Jesus answered them saying, See that no one leads you astray. I'm going to have to come back a little bit to that concept um, because I don't want to run us too long, but that will come up over and over again in Matthew 24. In fact, it's the most common refrain is some version of that. Don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. Don't believe it. Don't be fooled. It seems like Jesus' main point in all that he's about to say is don't be shocked and don't be fooled. Apparently, a good sign of the end times is that there's going to be a lot of people trying to shock us and fool us, and we're going to be shocked by the end or fooled by what people say. Let me, let me give you an example. I love this. <coughs> As a movie guy, this is awesome to me. What do these four statements have in common? Number one, beam me up, Scotty. Play it again, Sam. Luke, I am your father. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is fairest of them all? What do those four statements have in common? None of them are in a movie. Not one of them appear in a movie. Beam Me Up Scotty never shows up in any of the TV shows or the movies. A very different version of that phrase, but not that one. Yet that's the one we all reference. Play it again, Sam. Never shows up in Casablanca. Not once. Vader says, no, I am your father. Trust me on this one. I know what this one. <laughs> mirror, mirror on the wall is actually magic mirror on the wall who is fairest of them all. We are easily fooled. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here. I will across the next few weeks, but we are easily fooled. I, well, let, me just, let me just save your marriage a lot of time here. <laughs> Neither one of you know what you said, okay? <laughs> all of the evidence is abundantly clear that when you test people on what they said or what they saw or what they experienced, the answer is, Neither of you have any idea. You both have so interpreted what you think you said. What All we know is what we wish we had said. That's all, that's all we actually know. And yet every human being is absolutely sure that while everyone else is crazy, we are perfect tape recorders. We were, for the kids, that's like, that's like a, a digital recording of some kind. You just, like, that we could just play it back. Like, that's, that's what we think. We are special in that I am the one person who remembers verbatim, and we all passionately and perfectly. You remember what you were wearing. You remember the stance you took. You remember where you were standing when you said it verbatim. And all the research over and over and over again is you're wrong. 
probably about all the parts, but certainly about what you said. It is unreal how awful we are at this. We fool ourselves left and right. Again, there's so many different examples of this, but you just do, just do a YouTube search if you want to at some time as human beings, as eyewitnesses. And you will see we are awful at this. I tell clients all the time when that's what they want to argue about, you said this, no, you didn't. I actually will tell them, like, I'll interrupt and be like, let me just tell you straight up. I don't think either one of you has any idea what you said. And I don't need to know. That's, that's not important. If you guys want to spit at each other about what, what you said or what you didn't say, buy a tape recorder. They're a lot cheaper than coming to see me. It's a lot easier. Just, just record everything you say from now on, and then you can find out who won. See, we'll see if that helps your marriage, right? Because winning, that's what marriage is all about. He's saying, don't be shocked and don't be fooled. Don't, there's no reason for us to be. Many people are going to claim to be him. He says that. They're going to come. They're going to say that they're me. They're going to lead them astray. Jesus says to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. That's kind of weird to me, by the way, that they're going to do it in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, they're going to claim to be Christ. One of the things that strikes me about this is that the, probably the most common person, well, let's just ask, who is the most common person in your life who's probably going to try to take the job title of Messiah? Who's the most common person most likely to do that? Yeah, you. I'm the most likely person in my life to try to take the role of Jesus Christ. I'm probably the one who's going to be fooling me more. Now, I think he is talking about, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here, but as I thought about all the different people, I mean, like David Koresh thought he was God. Who else is that? Like, I'm sure there are plenty of people out there but it seems like really it's more, I don't know, me who seems to think I'm God. And I do want to make a slight, just a tiny little note in defense of Thomas here. Um, the Apostle Thomas, the twin, um, who's, who's my patron saint um, because he was a skeptic. I, I love skeptics. And I, I love that we had a skeptic there. I mean, I can, honestly, I, I don't mean this irreverently, but I can see Peter being fooled. You know, honestly, like Peter would have bought. He'd have bit off on it. And John was just a kid. I mean, okay, John buys it, but, you know, he's kind of a kid. I mean, he's a fisherman, right? I mean, like, he's from Galilee. I mean, how, how much training does the man have? I love the fact that Thomas, that you have 10 men come to Thomas who have been bleeding, sweating, sleeping, living, eating alongside him for three years under Jesus, and they come to him and say, you won't believe this. We saw Jesus. And Thomas' answer is, you're right. I don't. I don't believe you. In fact, I, nothing's going to convince me unless he shows up. Tell you what, he shows up, and I stick my hand in his side, and I stick my fingers in the holes in his hands and his feet. Maybe, maybe then I'll be convinced. You got to love a guy like that. And that guy travels all over the world and is probably martyred to proclaim the truth that Jesus had come back from the grave. Something convinced the boy embarrassingly, he took a strong stance and was wrong. But he did exactly what Jesus told him to do. In fact, we're going to get even more clear later when Jesus says, people are going to say, we saw him here, we saw him there. Don't believe them. Thomas just took him at his word. Even if it's these 10 idiots, if they come show up like, hey, we saw him. No, nope, don't believe you. By the way, there probably was a little awkward when Jesus did show up for Thomas. I've always thought that had been like that. No, it's, it's here, Thomas, stick your hand in my side. Like, ooh, no, I'm good. Come here. Stick it in there. So... But when we think of prophecy, the classic picture, so that's what we're getting into starting next week. We're going to the classic end times conversation. That's what we're going to jump into. When we think classic end times conversation, prophetic end times stuff, this is what we think. 
could accept the fact that this city is headed for a disaster of biblical proportion. What do you mean, biblical? What he means is Old Testament, Mr. Yes. Mayor. Real wrath of God type stuff. Exactly. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies. Rivers and seas boiling. Forty years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes. The dead rising from the grave. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. That's what you think of, right? When you think of end times prophecy, I've always wanted to use those, that, that scene in a prophecy pre sermon, and now I have. That's like a bucket list. Check. Um, these words that we throw around, Armageddon, Apocalypse, all these different things that are the titles of, of, of half the movies every year, even just knowing what those mean, I mean Armageddon is just a hill and of the hill of Megiddo. That's all it means. It's referenced in Revelation 16. Demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the Lord the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. There it is again. Blessed is the one who stays awake. There that is again. Keeping his garments on that he may not go around naked and be seen as exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. That's the, it is a hill in Israel, the hill of Megiddo. Um, if you go in June, we will, Lord willing, stand on it. It is right there. It's a key place. Apocalypse just means revealed, uncovered. Just the Greek word that means not covered anymore, to be revealed. The word is, it's the same word as the word revealed, which is where we get the name Revelation. So all that that book is, it is a revelation. It's important that we know the truth, Jesus tells us. Don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. Stay awake. Stay sober. Many are going to try to deceive you. Don't let them. Do you see this pattern over and over again in regards to this? New Age stuff, which is just old pagan stuff, horoscopes, astrology, psychics, all these are either fraudulent, and I think the vast, vast majority are just a huge waste of your time, money, resources. I think they're just raw foolishness. Um, I was trained in a psychology of transcendence class. I may even do some of this with you, but um, to do a lot of those tricks, they're just tricks in order to debunk people who are bought into that stuff. I'm telling you, it's, it's amazing. Just like the example I gave a few minutes ago. I do a cold reading for a group of students every year. I get their birthdays, which I actually write on at the last second because I don't have any idea. But the, and and I, I do this cold reading. Some of you are already freaking out that I do that. But hold on. And, and what we do is I just know enough about human psychology to know the things that we all think are true of us, but only us. Um, so you'll know. Let me give you an example. Everyone thinks that in high school, everyone else lived in their little cliques, right? Everyone lived in their little cliques. That's what everybody did. But you were uniquely able to move in and out of social spheres and in and out of cliques. You had friends in all the different social groups. Everybody else was pretty much stuck in their cliques. But you moved easily in and out of them, right? Everybody thinks they're that person. Everyone thinks that. No one's like, no, no, me, I just, I stayed with my friends. I never talked to anybody else. Are you kidding? Those people were losers. I just hung out with my, no, we all think, almost all of us think that. So you tell people that, and they think, wow, he knows me so well. When the truth is, that's kind of, you know, if you're a teenage girl, you cried yourself to sleep. I hate to, you all did. Every one of you. It's like, it's not psychic to say when you were a teenager, you really struggled with emotional uncertainty. Like, yeah, pretty much. You just didn't know everyone else was doing it too. You were often, often very worried about people's opinions about you when you were an adolescent. Yes. So much that you were distracted from them. Yes. Yeah. Mm. He knows me. 
We all have these. We all have similar hang-ups as human beings, that kind of stuff. About 95, 98, 99% of all of that kind of stuff is just that. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your money. The 10 seconds you spent reading your horoscope would have been better served reading in, uh, the back of the cereal box or, even better, the Bible. However, that being said, the only other thing that it can be is an honest effort to connect with the evil side of the invisible creation, and you do not want to play with that. The truth is there is an invisible creation, and a big part of it is raw evil at the satanic level. And when you play with something that can just destroy your life, that's not smart. You have to take that stuff seriously, and God calls us to. Do not be fooled by either the frauds or the demons. That being said, our comfort is not supposed to come on our own understanding. That's just sorcery. Our comfort is to come in God himself. Remember, that's one of the two lessons from prophecy. God knows what he's doing. We should trust in him. And the second one is this. There is an urgency. The urgency comes in our day. We don't need all kinds of cool spiritual tricks to impress us. We don't need pagan sacrifices. All we need is to become distracted. Spiritually, we are lazy, distracted, fat, and lethargic. Our materialism keeps us out of the fight. This is the part that struck me, and this is, by the way, I'm preaching to me. Our frantic efforts to, perf to perfect our first world problems keep us from getting into the fight. We are so frantic to make a 1% improvement on our comfort levels that we never end up engaging in service. The, the fantastically hard work of putting something on our schedule is enough to keep us from ministering. It's enough to keep us from having friendships. I think Satan must laugh at how easily we are stymied. The tiniest little bump is like a wall for us. Oh, how am I ever going to get past that? must just crack him up. We are stopped in our tracks and diverted to an easier, more passive pathway with almost no effort on his part. That's us. Why would he want something supernatural? That might motivate us. He wants us demotivated. He doesn't want us afraid. He just wants us lazy. There's an urgency at the task. I I'm telling you, I'm preaching at me. An urgency, the kingdom life that we would be sharing the good news with everything we have. This is the, this is just two, the two keys of prophecy, the comfort of who God is, and he knows what he's doing, and the urgency that the fact that he's coming back can and should create in us and our hearts. Not fear-based, but because we are different, we can live this eternal life. Well, it's the Spirit work as he will. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these men and women here today. Um. God, I pray that you will motivate us through the power of prophecy. We didn't get very far in your son's teaching today. Um, Lord, I, I look forward to us really flying through some of the powerful words that he teaches. God, I thank you for the power of prophecy, that it reminds us that you are God and you know what you're doing and you're going to do what you say. I thank you for that, that we can trust in you in that, that we see these things play out exactly like you said they would. In some cases, hundreds of years before. God, thank you for that. We can count on you. God, I pray you would help us to have a sense of urgency in our marriages and in our families, in our neighborhoods and with those who we come in contact with. I pray that we would have an urgency to be making disciples. That, that, that people would come on Wednesday nights and, and would be engaged in the disciple making here or Sunday nights. 
or another day during the week to be discipled here or through another church or through another ministry, Lord, whatever you call them to, that they would be becoming, being conformed to the image of your son, that they would follow people who follow you, and at the same time, Lord, that they would take what you had taught them and entrust it to other faithful people. God, help us to live that out, that that's what we're called to, and we pray that you would help us to do that through the power of your Holy Spirit and for obedience to your Son and sprinkling by his blood. And according to your perfect foreknowledge, we pray it all. Amen. Amen.